This is Crossroads, a Get Religion podcast. This morning we saw President Biden with a green tie and a green pocket square talking fondly about his Irish heritage. And a headline from the Associated Press, St. Patrick's Day Parade turns pandemic blues Irish green. How did St. Patrick's Day become an American rite of spring? Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion. And he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. So before we get to St. Patrick's Day and the media coverage of that, I want to have you talk about what you call a terrible piece. I think you use the word, (laughs) the adjective terrible, which is rare for you, in the New York Times on a different Irish saint. Well, I mean, let me just confess right up front that I use the word terrible because this is personal for me. Listeners should know a little bit about my own personal religious history. Many people may know I grew up Southern Baptist in Texas. My father was a Southern Baptist pastor. My brother is a well-known Southern Baptist leader. And then basically I, I read my way into a search in church history for ancient Christianity. And suffice it to say that in the early 1990s, I discovered the saints of Ireland and became fascinated with the Celtic saints. And one of the reasons that I was fascinated with the Celtic saints was they were so popular with the New Age movement of the late 80s and the early 90s. This whole kind of make your own religion, Eastern, reject Christianity, get back to nature. And I began to wonder is what they're saying about these Celtic saints true. And I began to dig into it, and I found out that the we, we are many years into some people trying to use the Celtic saints as symbols of everything that they want to do to change the church. And by that I mean the Roman Catholic Church. Although, of course, I ended up converting to Orthodoxy. And the Celtic saints, since they come well before the schism between East and West, Celtic saints are extremely popular with Orthodox Christians as well. And when we converted to Orthodoxy, my whole family took Western saints. My patron saint is St. Brendan of Ireland. My wife's patron saint is St. Hilda of Whitby, a British saint. And my daughter took as her patron saint, St. Brigid of Ireland. And my son took St. George. He was very young at the time, the ultimate little boy saint, St. George the Dragon Slayer, the patron saint of England. So we read up a lot on St. Brigid, among others, and read up a lot on St. Patrick, because you can't look at the Celts without looking at St. Patrick. And I'm well aware of the debates about what part of these people's lives are known to us in legends and what part of their lives are known to us in something that can approach historical fact. But we know a lot about the worship and the beliefs of the Celts. And it's very true that they are green, so to speak. They are 
nature and beauty and animals and birds and everything terribly important. They were not, however, kind of semi-pagans. In fact, if anything, led by Patrick, they, they converted out of paganism. And they may have kept some of their symbols, much as Alaskans who converted to Orthodoxy have kept some of the traditions of their people, but they have reinterpreted and re-symbolized these traditions in ways that are explicitly Christian. So the story that got me upset was a story in the New York Times about how basically feminists and people who, I think it's safe to call them neo-pagans, and people from a wide variety of faiths have claimed St. Brigid of Ireland as not just their own, but as a new hero for the the world of liberal Christian faith and things related to it. Here's a, a sample paragraph. A millennium and a half later, a renewed cult of St. Brigid, and cult there is used in a proper term, the followers of St. Brigid, is thriving in Kildar, even at a time when the Roman Catholic Church is in retreat in Ireland, weakened by clerical sexual abuse scandals, growing secularism, and, Catholic feminists say, by its refusal despite a collapse in the numbers of its all-male priesthood to give equal status to women. And the further you read down into this, the more they have adapted elements of St. Brigid to their own purposes in terms of the ordination of women and a host of other things. And this isn't just a kind of progressive Catholic order that's doing this. It's Episcopalians and Anglicans and people of Buddhists and people of a variety of different faiths. And they pick and choose details of, you know, from her life. So here's the important point from journalism beyond, say, my, my hurt feelings about this story and the fact that the story is so incredibly one-sided. Like I say, I'm very familiar with the neo-pagan use of these sources. And there is a story there about how Brigid is being reinterpreted and re-symbolized as a hero of people who reject traditional forms of Christianity. Yeah, that's part of a debate. At the same time, you have centuries and centuries of material about this woman and about the Celtic saints in general and you have writings about them, some of these writings quite ancient. You have liturgies and prayers of the people of that time. There's another side of the story. I don't so much object to them reporting on the reinterpretation of Brigid. That's a valid story. What I object to is them assuming that these interpretations of the story of Brigid are automatically valid and worthy of honor and praise, whereas meanwhile, the traditional observances related to these saints are not. There's a moment in the New York Times story where it, it notes you know, that there are circles of people with their rosaries saying, I believe the phrase they use is formal Catholic prayers. Yeah. Pilgrims from across Ireland long came to St. Brigid's Well, a spring in a marsh near Kildar, to recite formal Catholic prayers 
and seek the saints' blessings, especially around her feast of February 1. But as the cult of Brigitte has changed in recent years, and as more people have flocked to Kildar from around the world, so has the pattern of prayer. And basically, that phrase, to recite formal Catholic prayers, is all we get in this story, representing how traditional Catholics might consider this woman to be of great importance, and her story to be importance, and her role as the head of an order to be important. For example, the fact that she was the head of an order, she's holding a staff, they imply that that means she was ordained as a bishop, which is something you won't find anywhere in the traditional materials about her through the centuries. I mean, it, some even interpret her as a goddess figure from neo-paganism because when her father was a pagan, and then she converts out of that background very early in the history of Irish Christianity. I could go on and on about this story, but I want listeners to hear the central point there. I'm not objecting to the New York Times doing a feature story about how modern people, and and by the way, and it's not new, they've been doing this for decades, how modern people reinterpret someone like St. Brigid or St. Brendan and others and reinterpret their stories to their own purposes. I'm not objecting to that as a journalism story. What really fires me up is when it's automatically assumed that that interpretation is true and that there's no need whatsoever to have traditional Catholic and Orthodox people who revere these saints to be able to talk about the actual writings about the saints. In some cases, like Patrick, the writings of the saint. It's the one-sided story of it. And I took this one personally because of my reverence for the Irish saints. I'm sitting here looking at an icon of my patron saint, St. Brendan of Ireland, right here above my desk in my writing office. And like I said, these, these saints now are a part of my family, quite literally, and it matters to me. So on St. Patrick, who has ironically become, at least in America, the patron saint of hedonism in a lot of ways, most of the news coverage I have seen so far has either been post-COVID return of St. Patrick's Day parades right, or some myth-busting regarding St. Patrick himself. Right. I mean, his the actual color of St. Patrick from early iconography, for example, is blue because of particular liturgical seasons. And his death and his feast day normally occurs during Lent, which is not exactly a time for wild parties and all of the beer and beef that you can consume, you know, in one 24-hour period of time. In fact, there were interesting stories a number of years ago when the St. Patrick's Day fell on a Friday during Lent, you know, and people were appealing to their bishops for permission to break the Lenten fast. Of course, for the Orthodox, we're fasting from meat and dairy all the way through Lent, so one day of the week isn't something that we would argue about that much. And then we've had the ongoing stories, and this gets closer, I think, to the heart of your question. We've had for decades now the ongoing stories of who gets to march in the St. Patrick's Day Parade in New York City, and who doesn't. 
and specifically, should they have an order of gay policemen be allowed to march? And then the Archbishop, the Cardinal of New York, will protest that, and then that gets into a gay rights dispute. And eventually it comes down to the fact that St. Patrick is important as a cultural symbol of Irish political power in New York City, and thus in a very important and symbolic part of America. And thus you have cultural religion versus the actual content of centuries of content of Catholic and Orthodox religion, considering a saint who, quite frankly, is if you were creating the Mount Rushmore of Christian missionaries in the history of Christian faith, St. Patrick would have to be a very strong nominee to be on that Mount Rushmore. And that's probably not what you're sensing out of the stories you're reading. Would I be correct? No, not at all. Really, <laughs> I mean, they'll they'll acknowledge his biography, but they he, do. He, well, to to a certain point, they'll say Saint Pat, the, the real Saint Patrick, was not Irish. He was kidnapped by Irish oh. pirates. All those kinds of things. It's a, it's a perfunctory kind of yeah. acknowledgement of the history that we have of the man, but of his contribution to Christian and his groundbreaking life of suffering as a Christian missionary. Nothing is said. But there's the hook to it right there, which is the kidnapping by pirates. I mean, he is, in fact, a Briton. He's a Christian from the early days of Christianity in Britain, in the southern part of the, of the island of the Mighty, and he's kidnapped and taken off into slavery, which is how he learns the, the religions and the myths and the language of what become Ireland. And then he manages to escape. And then he escapes, and he goes to France, and he studies, and he's ordained a priest, and he comes back. And in a series of what are reported as visions or dreams or whatever, God calls him to go back to surely the last place on earth he wants to go back to, which is Ireland. But he speaks the language, and he knows the people, and back he goes as a missionary bishop and becomes the symbol of the new Ireland, of the post-pagan Ireland. And, you know, did he hold up a shamrock and say that the three leaves were the symbols of the Trinity? You know, this is where it's, it's hard to know. But the simple fact is that we have something that historians accept, if not as the direct writings of St. Patrick, the famous book, The Confessions of St. Patrick, the details of that are pretty much accepted as historical fact in terms of the reporting of his life. And you don't get the whole mythology of Patrick from the man's writing. What you get from his own writing is his faith and his own story, the kidnapping and the visions and the prayers and the suffering. And you don't get casting the snakes out of Ireland, and you don't get green, and you don't get shamrocks. You get the story of an early Christian missionary. And every now and then you'll see some allusion to this, you know, that helps you out a little bit when you're dealing with this, but not very often. Are you familiar with the St. Patrick's breastplate prayer? Absolutely. It's tremendous. Yeah. And to me, it's one of the most 
striking expressions of Celtic spirituality that we have. I mean, I bind unto myself today the strong name of the Trinity by invocation of the same, the three and one and one and three. And he goes on, you know, through the incarnation and the love of the angels. And then there, yes, you do have these beautiful images of nature. And you have things that, you know, you wouldn't think of Italian government when you hear words like, I bind unto myself today the virtues of the starlit heaven, the glorious sun's life-giving ray, the whiteness of the moon at even, the flashing of the lightning free, the whirling winds, tempestuous shocks, the stable earth, the deep salt sea around the old eternal rocks. Now that that sounds like somebody on the Irish coast looking out at the ocean to me. But then he goes straight on. I bind myself today the power of God to hold and lead, his eye to watch, his might to stay, his ear to hearken to my need, the wisdom of my God to teach, his hand to guide, his shield to ward, the word of God to give me speech, his heavenly host to be my guard. And then right on to the, against the demon snares of sin, the vice that gives temptation force, the natural lusts that war within, the hostile men that mar my course. And it goes on and on. It's, it's striking, and it is uniquely Irish and Celtic in the real sense of what we know about the early church of the Celts. And I've read a lot about this. And there's so many things we don't know about the Celts, things that have been destroyed through the various waves of oppression that have come upon the Celts, whether it's Vikings or whether, quite frankly, from the viewpoint of an Orthodox person, whether the Norman invasion, despite the efforts of St. Hilda of Whitby, my wife's patron saint, whether a lot of the Orthodox traditions were lost and their their emphasis on the great role of monasteries and the bishops and the spiritual fathers who lived in them, things that are so Orthodox in terms of their structure. You know, there are things we don't know, we, but we know that you couldn't keep these people in the building. <laughs> the Celts didn't hang around in church. They were always marching somewhere, singing and praying and processing with icons and torches and crosses. They were always marching somewhere, which to me brings up the St. Patrick's Parade. If I was Catholic and I lived in New York, someone, and I'm veering away from journalism here, although it would certainly be a great story if somebody did this, if the St. Patrick's Day Parade has become a symbol of political power, green beer, and what groups are currently in among the secular saints of our society at this moment in time. Maybe a bunch of Catholics related to St. Patrick's Cathedral should apply for the ability to have a formal prayer and hymns procession singing the breastplate of St. Patrick and carrying an icon of this great saint. And maybe it's just time to do an alternative not parade, procession is the proper word to use in a Catholic or Orthodox context. 
I just throw that out there for our listeners. For that matter, it would be an interesting story to find out what the people of St. Patrick's Cathedral do to celebrate St. Patrick's Day. It may involve some beer, and it may involve a little bit of feasting, but I guarantee you it's something the public doesn't know about in terms of its contents. I'm also struck by the kind of cartoonish way that this day has become the American cultural icon. You mentioned the New York, Boston slash Chicago connection here. It seems to have a lot to do with law enforcement, a lot to do with previous waves of Irish immigration. Bono is said to have written a poem that Nancy Pelosi read today at a congressional luncheon. Uh, Bono, of course, being Dublin born. And he has a deep, deep, deep love, all things of his native land. Well, and someone also now who, rumor has it, worships with Catholics more than he does Anglicans and wears a rosary around his neck given to him by St. Pope John Paul II. I have a photo of him wearing it here in my office. It has taken on, and it struck me, that no other church feast day has taken on the kind of cultural, political, with the exception of maybe Todd Wilkin, the only person not eating corned beef and cabbage today, a cultural, political, and what should I say? You said, did you say civic religion before? Well, yeah, and it's also, it's a pop culture day is part of what you're saying. You know, I mean, no one on a talk show tonight will do any humor that doesn't include St. Patrick's Day humor. It's a part of the symbolism of kind of the wacky, crazy side of New York City. I can honestly tell you, I went to a journalism conference in New York City, and I looked up and I thought, well, you know, I bet you there are some pubs here. Obviously, there's like 360 Irish pubs in New York. And I looked up, and sure enough, there was a hotel right above St. Brendan's Pub. And I thought to myself, well, that'll be fun. You know, St. Brendan is my patron saint. I'll go have dinner in a pub and eat pub food. I've never been that into beer, quite frankly. That may offend Lutherans. but And so I went to this thing, and I stayed in the hotel right above it. Aha, I had not checked the calendar. Let me stress that you do not want to rent a room in one of the lower floors of a New York City hotel above a Irish pub on St. Patrick's Day. You are not going to be getting a lot of sleep. And suffice to say, it was not because they were singing hymns really loud. I'll just leave it at that. Why does it survive as not only the cultural icon, but as the kind of top of the local news story? Everyone in my local news was wearing green this morning. and Yeah. It's almost a cultural mandate that this be in some way not only celebrated, but also acknowledged by journalists. Now, you're saying that that would be true in St. Louis as well as New York. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yes. okay. So there, there you just made the connection. They're doing it because everybody on the real news from New York and Washington is doing it, right? And if you're doing it in Washington and New York and obviously Boston, and maybe Chicago or whatever, if they're all wearing green on this day, that means we all need to wear green on this day, which means it's just a sign of kind of adopted cultural symbolism of how important the Irish are. And that's a statement about primarily New York 
politics, and then to a lesser extent the Irish moving to Chicago, and the importance of that city in the history of Democratic Party politics. I guess it's not just politics. We really need to stress this is a part of the symbolism of union, working-class Irish politics, and that's to say the Democratic Party, which means you're probably much more likely to see Democrats wearing green today than you are Republicans because of that Irish and labor union and working-class heritage, which is very ironic today since so many of our culture war battles center on issues of class and who's in power and who's not. If you're looking at the values of working class Irish Catholics in the upper Midwest and in the Northeast, I don't think you're going to find a lot of those advocated by hmm, Facebook, Google, Apple, Amazon, etc., the new cultural elites. But probably all their websites are decked out in green today. But is that an anachronism now with the Democratic Party of the United States, largely unacknowledged by the press, losing the grandchildren of those immigrants in a lot of ways? No, because it's just symbolism. It's just fun. It's just politics and fun politics and funny politics and crazy symbolism, wild, fun story politics. Which, which to me, once again, if you actually care about the faith history of the Celts, I guess that's part of what makes the day particularly, the, the media coverage of the day to be particularly kind of offensive. And you'd like them to at least do something newsy, do something alternative. Maybe we've reached the point where it would be an act of cultural rebellion to actually on St. Patrick's Day, cover St. Patrick's Day, as in the actual feast day. I guarantee you there'll be a mass. I guarantee you there will be prayers and hymns in praise of the work of St. Patrick. Wouldn't it be different? Why not put that on the evening news tonight? I mean, if you actually want to do something different and new. So I often ask you this question, if you're an editor at the New York Times and you have one or two uh, religion writers working for you, Washington Post, you have Sarah Pulliam Bailey working for you. Mm -hmm. It's a week before St. Patrick's Day. What story do you want out of her? Well, the debates about, like, like I said, this Brigid story could have been a perfectly valid story. It's just that I'd like to see the other half of it reported. I'd like to know about the people who do pilgrimages to the well of St. Brigid in order to actually revere the saint who has been revered there for centuries. A friend of mine who did that very thing has a vial of water from St. Brigid's well, you know, the whole bit. Why not at least make them half the story and cover the fact that there are debates about St. Brigid? Cover the controversy if you're saying that there are people doing this controversial thing in terms of re-imaging St. Brigid, and to some degree re-imaging St. Patrick. Although, in the case of St. Patrick, I think the 
maybe the the hook is what you mentioned earlier. If you're going to do myth busting on St. Patrick, maybe you should point out that there's no need to bust the myth of St. Patrick because the man wrote his own story. We actually have something that historians, a document that historians take pretty seriously on the details of the life of this remarkable man. Maybe you do a story on what St. Patrick said about himself. The first words of that confession that you're talking about is, my name is Patrick, I am a sinner. How, yeah. would, that, how would that play in, in yeah. the press nowadays? Yes, exactly. And, and there are points in his life where there are controversies about his own struggles and what, you know, why did he do this or why did he do that? All of that is valid to me. As long as you're saying we have the story from the man himself, to agree that is unusual for other figures in that age. I mean, for example, in the case of St. Brendan, the writings that are attributed to Brendan we know come from a couple of hundred years later. But at the same time, we're dealing with, with a people who sang epic poetry just at a, a moment's notice. We know that these were people in an oral tradition who kept songs and kept prayers and kept poems. So the fact that there are elements of the faith of St. Brendan, you know, in the, in the, the journeys of St. Brendan and the other epic things we've had written about him, and there's now some interesting archaeology to back some of that up, even here in America. The fact that Brendan probably got to America centuries, or at least Celtic monks linked to Brendan, got to America centuries earlier than Columbus or anybody else. And the Vikings got over here, too. There's a lot of interesting stuff here. Why not just actually discuss what we know about the lives of these people and why centuries and centuries have Christians have considered them so important. You know, I mean, just mix that in there with maybe with the green beer and other things. Terry Mattingly is senior fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, thank you. Glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at getreligion.org.